Hey friends, welcome to Conversations with Kenzie, a podcast hosted by yours truly, Kenzie Brenna. No topic goes unturned here. We talk about everything with everyone. We like to get raw and sometimes we get heavy and sometimes we swear. So I'm warning you now. Also, we are working remotely. So audio quality between host and guest may differ. Lastly, check out our show notes for giveaways, fun promotions, or discounts to our favorite stuff. Enjoy the show. Okay. Hi, Rini. Hi, Kenz. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. Today is definitely a day, but not bad. How about you? Same here. It's There's a lot going on in the world right now, and I feel like it's, I mean, it's just it's just a tricky time right now um, mm-hmm. for especially black folks, but for us as influencers as well, I think. And there's just a lot going on in the online world and the real world. So just trying mm-hmm. to navigate it all. Yeah, it definitely feels like the world is a little bit on fire right now. Mm-hmm. And social media can be really it can be a lot going through stuff over and seeing, you know, one It's like we're all, at least on my feed, I'm obviously like I don't follow anybody who doesn't share the same type of Mm -hmm. politics that I have. And so when I scroll, it's like the same message over and over again, Mm -hmm. which is a good thing. It also can lead to a lot of burnout if you're on it and you're like being responsive to everyone and trying to make sure that you are promoting the same message as everyone else or trying to find like What's like another unique thing that I that I can share from like another person of color, like trying to find all of that stuff. I feel like it can it can definitely lead to burnout. And so I think one of the biggest things during this is like keep educating yourself, keep doing the work and set boundaries. So then that way you can recover from it, because otherwise, like how good of an ally are you really if you are burnt out and can't like, you know, perform activism properly and all of that stuff. Oh, I totally agree. And I think something that even came up for me was like, I see a lot of people posting about it. And and it does seem like all of us white people just woke up now, you know, and and Mm -hmm. black people have been doing this work for forever. So we're just like, hey, okay, we're here now. Um, Mm -hmm. So so it can it can seem like a lot of people are posting it to check it off their list and to say, like, hey, I I took a stance, but that's definitely not where it ends. So just diving into all of this work can definitely be a lot. But what always helps me is to just remember that, you know, if I'm feeling fatigued and and I have thoughts like, oh, you know, I, I can't you know I can't dive into this other resource right now. I've already done so much today that's that's part of my privilege showing up and Mm -hmm. you know that's something I have to grapple with and I have to work through on my own without like putting it out there or putting my guilt out there that's something I'm working through on my own and it's also okay to take a break from it um and to set boundaries for sure but also acknowledge that like we yeah we can't just put up a social media post and, and kind of be done with it right now I think we really just need to get to work And I know you, Ken, you've been doing this work for a long time. Um, And I've learned so much from you, even just being friends with you. So really appreciate you. Oh, thanks. And of course, like I've learned it from every other person of color who's been doing the work. And you're so right that when we want to take a break, that is like privilege showing up. And it is important to say that, you know, black bodies, brown bodies, any body that is marginalized, fat bodies, disabled bodies, queer bodies, like they don't take a break from themselves. You know, like a fat person just doesn't, can't just like hide their weight and then pretend to not be fat. So then that way they can just take a break from being fat or a disabled person can't strip off their disability. So then that way they can just say, okay, I'm going to take a break now and then I'm going to enter back into the war zone. Yeah. So I 100% agree with you that it is our privilege showing up. One of the greatest things that I have heard is that like we have to utilize our privilege in a certain way so that way it does benefit marginalized people. So if we are able to take a break, so then that way we can come back full force. I don't know if that's the right thing. I'm still learning throughout this as well, 
think I feel like this is going to be like a forever learning thing. You know, unfortunately, racism isn't going to be cured in our lifetime. Like that's just that's not. I remember us talking about this, I think, on our last Mm -hmm. chat, actually, that this is just something that won't we won't experience this in our generation, like a lot of change. But we have to just do the work and it'll just be a lifelong thing for us. And that's just yeah. the way it is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was talking to you about that because sometimes it feels like the work that we're doing, I was saying that the work that we that we do, sometimes it feels like it's never ending. Like I want to see so much more progress. I want things to be better. I want the system to be different. And if it's not going to be different, then like, what's the point? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it just feels you can just get into that defeatist headspace where you're like, what am I doing? Like, nothing is changing. I'm just this little cog in a big machine. And how do my small actions help? And I, it's interesting. I think back to the story that this man, Tom Chi, spoke about. And he talks about (laughs) it's, it's a very, Everyone has has to stick with me for like two minutes with this because it's a little bit abstract, but like it's good. I promise it's good. He talks about the journey of blue-green algae and how blue-green algae, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to butcher this, but like a billion years ago, blue-green algae figured out photosynthesis. It was the only thing in history on planet Earth that has figured out photosynthesis. And it was the first plant that started basically. And so it started replicating itself. And over and over and over again for however long that blue-green algae worked to produce oxygen. And before blue-green algae existed, oxygen didn't exist on planet Earth. And then, and again, I'm probably butchering this, and so I bet you there's going to be like some evolutionary biologist that's going to be like, um, nice try, but try again another time. But basically, he was saying that one cell of blue-green algae lasts, I think, about like a week or two weeks. And imagine that blue-green algae was just like, you know what? My time here isn't worthwhile because I only get to live for a certain amount of time. I don't even get to see the product of what I'm producing. And here we are like, you know, three billion years later, I think, (laughs) I think. And we are conscious and we're alive and you and I get to interact and have this like really incredible complex conversation today and blue green algae doesn't get to do that but they're a product of like they helped us get here and so when we think about the future of our kids and our kids kids and our kids 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 it's like we don't get to see the ripple effects of our work now everything that we're doing now is four thousand years in the future you know and everything that we do it does absolutely matter but we have to keep doing it like it only matters if we don't stop. And so I try to think of that where I'm like, right, like I don't know what the effects are of our work and who knows how long it's going to take, but like it absolutely matters even if I can't feel it. And I think that also talking about mental health, I feel like you and I, when we've been in like our dark times, we've had to like kind of get into that headspace where it's like, I don't know what the answer is now. I don't know why I exist, but like I have to keep holding on to like figure it out until the next day. Oh, totally. And I find that it gives me such a sense of purpose too, because I don't, I mean, I'm not a super religious person. I know you aren't either. So for me, like I, I had to grapple with like, what is my purpose in this world? And having gone through mental health stuff and eating disorders and, and, and going through those dark times, it's just really hard sometimes. And I find that doing this work just, gives me a sense of purpose and it's not like everybody has to be doing that work but just to do something that has meaning to you even if it doesn't like produce any results in your lifetime I think can be one of the reasons we're here like if that's Mm -hmm. what it can mean to me and it's helpful to me then I'm gonna roll with it Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I love that algae story (laughs) Even if you butchered it, it was I totally got the point. (laughs) Great. I definitely think that it is important for us to be looking at ourselves as a collective and like think of ourselves as like part of something bigger than ourselves. Like I think that that's like the spiritual aspect to it, where it's like we're all fighting for this common good and we're all connected in this. And so you don't you don't need to be spiritual or religious necessarily. 
you can connect to each other through that, like through common goals and working towards like a common, yeah, a common value, a common end game instead of it just being like, I'm isolated. I'm doing this work on my own. That's it kind of thing. But That's so true. It's also the same with religions too, right? Like it, it is sort of our religion, quote unquote, even if it doesn't have to be with like spiritual beliefs we have the same values and I think that's it's it's actually the exact same thing as like Mm -hmm. people coming together in faith it's like we believe in something and Mm -hmm. we fight for that and we stand for it and we work towards it every day yeah absolutely did you always have that perspective is that a like because that's a very strong perspective to hold you know like sticking together every day we're gonna conquer this you know Every small, hard moment leads up to bigger, harder moments, but persevering through those feels really good. Did you always have that, or is that something that you've built up over throughout the last few years? I think it's something that I've built up during my career as a content creator and just connecting with like-minded people online. Um, It's one of the blessings of the internet is to be able to connect with people that hold the same values and beliefs and obviously like being open to learning for me in particular, it was about, you know, unlearning diet culture and unlearning all of the harmful beliefs that I was taught growing up and, and finding community in that way. But I think that was just a huge part of me, like believing in change and in us coming together as a collective. So that was sort of my starting point. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because unlearning diet culture is like almost leaving a religion. If you think of like yeah. dieting, yeah, if you think of dieting as like a cult or a religion, it's like you don't diet, you're not good, like you're a sinner, you're immoral if you don't. I mean, we do that with food. You know, we 100%. place food on like, yeah, on a huge moral scale. If it's not like pure, organic, healthy, touched by, you know, touched by Gwyneth Paltrow, then it's like, you can't eat it. And so we've like moralized food and we've made it into this like holy act that if you are super healthy, if you fast, if you are also keto, paleo, all at the same time, then, then you're good. Did you think that when you left that idea, were you like, I'm in uncharted territories and I don't even know, I don't know how to feel good. Because I feel like when I stopped dieting, I was like, I don't understand how to do this. Like it almost like leaving a cult, like where it's like, I don't, I don't understand. I don't get this. It's, it's totally like leaving a cult. And that's something that I only realized like two years into recovery though. Um, and I feel everybody realizes that at a later stage, because when you're in it, it doesn't feel like a religion or it doesn't, you know, you just kind of throw these terms around like clean eating or I was so bad last weekend, you know, I had all of this food. It's just, you don't even realize the damaging things that you're saying. And it's not only causing damage towards other people, but also yourself. And yeah, that's something that you realize afterwards. For me, I definitely, I didn't even know how to do recovery. I didn't know how to eat. Um, I didn't know how to listen to my body. And I think that's that's something that everybody goes through in recovery in particular, but also just like, just on everyone's journey to stopping dieting. It's like, how do I even honor my body? And how do I learn to listen to my body? There's just, all of a sudden, there's no rules anymore to follow. And if you're a rule follower, and if you're somebody that, you know, thrives off of structure, and is like type A, and and likes, you know, just having guidelines to follow, that's definitely new territory. I don't know how long it took for you. I mean, I'm still figuring it out sometimes. I think it's sort of just like we talked about in the beginning, like unlearning racism as a white person. It's the same thing. Not the same thing, but like, it's the same principle of like, it's a lifelong journey of unlearning the Mm -hmm. rules that we grew up with and the beliefs that we grew up with. So I think, you know, I'm getting better at understanding when when old thoughts creep up for me or when I have thoughts like "Ooh, you know I'm a bad person for eating this or when I feel ashamed for having eaten certain things or for not having exercised for multiple weeks in a row and stuff like that I just have to remind myself that like I trained my brain to have these thoughts and it's gonna take years to create new pathways in my brain and to unlearn 
all of these damaging things that that I taught myself and that society taught. Yeah, that's so true. And you're right. It is really, really, really similar to unlearning racism because we learn at such a young age that we have to like go through external cues as to when to eat. And Mm -hmm. that one, and I just mean that's similar to unlearning racism, that racism is like an external thing that we learn as kids. Mm -hmm. Like kids aren't born racist. They're brought up in a racist culture and society. There's that one account kids eat in color. And she's given me so much to think about regarding my own childhood and eating because so often I was like forced to finish my plate when I wasn't hungry or I was told that I could only have like one bite of candy. And so I really feel like that messed up my, the intuition that I had with my body. Did you have a similar upbringing, like regarding you have to eat everything on your plate or you have to you know, wait until a specific time on Fridays or Saturdays to have candy or anything like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) For me, it was a lot of, I think I've shared that with you before, but, you know, not publicly, but I grew up with two older brothers and they both had just a ferocious appetite and they were both athletes and I was, you know, their little sister. And so they were just encouraged to eat a lot of food and they were encouraged to have a big appetite. And, you know, my parents would be like, oh, they would just kind of joke around about how big their appetite is, almost as if they were proud. But for me, it was always like, you know, if I put more food on my plate than than they thought was appropriate for me at that age, it was like, oh, you know, it was like, why, why are you eating so much or you shouldn't be eating this much or oh, you know, little Rini has a big appetite today. Ha ha. You know, it was just more so like a shaming as instead of a, you know, an encouragement to eat more food. And there was also a lot of, you know, hiding candy or, you know, my mom would buy some chocolate. And I remember, you know, eating some chocolate and she would sort of call me out on how much chocolate I ate or ask me why I ate so much chocolate. And it was just those very early childhood memories. And again, I only put that together in therapy, like in recovery. I didn't know that this is what what shaped my relationship to food and what potentially contributed to my eating disorder. But it was just it started very, very early on. And I do believe that this is a double standard when it comes to, you know, little girls and, and just women in general and just like that feminine aspect of like we shouldn't be eating a lot of food and we shouldn't feel hunger (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, we should just be slim and we should eat a certain way and we should be polite. And just, there's so much plays into that. And I think food is just such an important part of our upbringing and our culture. So it's just, yeah, there's, there's so much anger still sometimes that comes up for me um, Mm -hmm. because my parents didn't know any better, but it's, it's just, it's just hard because I I was just so influenced by all of these things and there's still resentment that comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm at a point to now, especially now that I'm pregnant, where I think that, you know, it can stop with me. Like this, mm. this is probably stuff that my parents grew up hearing from their parents, especially my mom, you know, and, and her mom probably too. And who knows when this started and how it was passed down from generation to generation. But it can stop with me. And that's where I can find empowerment when it comes to that. But to answer your question in a super long winded way. um, Yeah, it definitely hurt a lot of that growing up. I also remember um, my parents just being very concerned when I put on weight and puberty. And when I first went on the pill, all of this is so normal. Like, as women, we do gain weight in puberty. It's part of a shift in hormones. It's part of, you know, growing up and there's just so much shame that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was just a lot of comments made around just my body changing and mm-hmm. gaining weight. And, you know, maybe I shouldn't have eaten that second plate of food. Um, mm. So there is a lot yeah. of that. Yeah, it's it's so interesting how all of the small stuff in our childhood just adds up to like enormous shit shows when we're adults Mm -hmm. where we're like great great cool 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 I'm gonna spend the rest of my life trying to undo all of that I hear you I totally hear you about the brother thing I have a younger brother who is taller than me and it just seems that like 
we also equate like body size to how much people eat. And so because he was taller than me, he was allowed to eat a lot more. And because of that, I resented him because I wanted to eat just as much as he was. But because I was like a little bit chubby, my parents were like, no, you can only get you know, this much when we're ordering out, but your brother can get whatever he wants because he's a boy. And so boys are allowed to take up space. They're allowed to be bigger. They're allowed to eat more. They're allowed to be louder. And I was like taught that, you know, you have to be a little bit more quiet. You have to eat a little bit less. You, And so because of that, I'm curious if this was the same for you, but I 100% hid food as a kid. Like I would get food and I would run into my room and I would hide it or I would eat it in secret. But, and I loved it. But then at the same time, I was, I knew that it was wrong. And so it was like, never like I could fully enjoy it. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, while you were talking about your brother being allowed to eat more food and you not being allowed, those memories started coming up for me again, where I would go to the store and buy all this candy as soon as I had like a bit of money. And that was me as a teenager now, like not even a little girl anymore. I would like go to the store or the drugstore or whatever and get candy and then hide it and go home and eat it in my room and then throw out the candy wrappers in the dumpster outside. So like my mom would never see the wrappers. So that's something that I did like all throughout my teenage years up until my eating disorder didn't start till you know age 16 or so um but I definitely did have disordered eating tendencies before and I think a big part of you know us being encouraged to eat less whatever we can't have we we want more of and obviously our bodies weren't getting enough food um because (laughs) we need a lot of food like especially Mm -hmm. as we get into puberty we need so much more food than than we were allowed to eat at the time so like our bodies were trying to get it back so I I I really think it's both a mental and a physical thing it's Mm -hmm. not just that like we weren't allowed to eat it so we wanted it even more it was also our bodies literally asking for it and our brains finding ways to actually make us get the food and get those calories in one way or another and then it was the shame we felt and the sneaking around that actually was damaging not the food itself Right. Yes, absolutely. So continuing on the shame and sneaking around with food, let's talk about doing that in a relationship because you have this very touching and very relatable story of how Sean, your husband, found out that you were struggling with binge eating. And would you be able to tell it for us before I continue, actually? Yeah, absolutely. So just to give you a bit of a backstory my like I said my eating disorder sort of started at 16 before that I struggled with disordered eating tendencies and then it just developed into a full-on I just got into just eating less and doing like cleanses and diets and stuff like that and I don't want to get too much into it but it just like really snowballed from there and developed into anorexia pretty quickly um and I struggled with that for about two or three years and from there on, you know, my body just eventually couldn't take the restriction anymore. And the binges started happening. This is a very real experience for a lot of people that diet. It's just eventually like your body starts to rebel. Um, at the time, I didn't know what binge eating was because like the internet was, there's no social media or anything like Google was still pretty new. Um, I'm pretty old. <laughs> um, so the internet like wasn't really a thing where I could like go and find other people that struggle with it. But yeah, I started struggling with binge eating um, like when I was 19 and that lasted till age 27. And I started dating Sean. I met Sean when I was 20. So it was pretty, you know, fresh into my eating disorder considering how long it lasted. But anybody with that ever struggle with disordered eating or an eating disorder can probably relate that you find ways to hide it from your partner. You find ways to hide it from your parents and your friends. Um, And so I got really, really good at just, you know, eating quote unquote normal in front of Sean um, and then hiding my binges when he was either away for work or after he went to sleep or we were also in a long distance relationship for a few years. So, you know, whenever we weren't together, I would sort of just 
go on like weeks and weeks of, of binge eating and then of course trying to make up for it. And that was just, yeah, it was, it was a really, really painful time. At the time I didn't have the resources and I didn't really know like how to put an end to it because I was so ashamed to reach out for help. I had never talked to anybody about it. I had maybe, I think I had tried to bring it up to my brother once um, when it had just started and I didn't even know it was binge eating disorder and I was just trying to share with him. And he just said something like, why don't you just stop eating when you're full? Like, why can't you just do that? Mm -hmm. And that just made me feel so ashamed that like, I never even wanted to talk to Sean about it because I just assumed that, you know, he never struggled with anything like that. He was always a very intuitive eater. So like, he would just think that I'm a monster or he would probably leave me or, you know, just completely irrational thoughts. Like he would just think I'm gross or, you know, I just, I can't do it. It's going to be my secret. And I was also pretty good at, you know, not like not really changing my body weight. So, you know, I would binge and then I would eat almost nothing for a couple days. And so my weight would stay stable. So nobody like from the outside ever raised any concerns or, you know, I just, I never seemed like somebody who quote unquote, and this is so wrong by the way, because eating disorders and binge eating disorder come in all shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. um, but everybody just thought I was quote unquote, super healthy. And I was just working out a lot and all of these things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so to get to the story. Um, so it was after we had just gotten married and I had just moved to Canada full time <laughs> and we lived together and all that. And it was just, it was a difficult time for me because I had just said goodbye to my family back home and I was, you know, newly living in Canada. I had just gotten my permanent residency and was feeling pretty alone and Sean was gone for work all the time. And I just was going through a really rough time when it came to my binge eating patterns that was sort of just my way of coping and numbing out at the time. Um, so I struggled a lot with that. And Sean, yeah, Sean was gone for a work trip at the time. And I didn't think he was going to come back to like three days later. But basically what happened was he came home early and just walked in on me in the middle of a binge eating episode. And he just wanted to come home early to surprise me. And walked in on me and I was basically just sitting like I heard him come in and there was just food everywhere and I was feeling sick to my stomach and, you know, I had just eaten all this food and there was like empty food boxes and candy wrappers and all of the stuff that I hadn't thrown out yet just all in the kitchen and I heard him come in and I just knew like I have I don't have enough time to hide all of this. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I need to come clean. This was just like. It was just a split second where I just knew like, okay, it's time. It's time to just tell him. So I just sort of sat down on the kitchen floor and he walked in and I was crying and I just, I didn't even know where to start, but he was just like, oh my God, babe, are you okay? And that was the moment where I opened up to him. Um, and I just told him basically that I had never shared that with anybody because I was just so ashamed and I was afraid to tell him because you know, my anxiety just made it so I think that he would leave yeah. me and we had just gotten married, you know, and it was just like, for me, it was just such a devastating moment. It felt like, you know, my secret was out, you know, um, looking back, yeah. it was the best thing that could have happened to me. I wish I would have told him sooner. I wish I would have reached out for help sooner, but mm -hmm. he, you know, none of my worst fears came true. He just said, Hey, let us figure this out together. And the next day he was like looking up resources and, and hotlines for me and encouraged me to reach out for help. And I wish I would have done that myself way sooner, mm. but yeah. Um, yeah. So much to touch on there. Oh my goodness. Where do I start? <laughs> so much. It's so good. Uh, yeah. I can imagine that when that happened to you, that there would be this incredible sense of freedom, like at the same time where it's just like, well, it's out in the open now. And it's almost as if, because I know that when I've been exposed in similar situations, but not anything, not anything really close to that, but in similar situations where it's like, wow, I have to get really honest about this, that I get really scared and I hate it. And that there's a sense of freedom that comes with it where it's like, yep. And now I'm not in hiding anymore. You know, like now I don't have this like shameful secret. And so 
I am curious if like people who are listening are going to feel that too, where they've also experienced stuff like that. And also there is this element where we should be actually talking about food and the way that we view food and the way that we value food with our partners. That's deeper than just like, do you want to buy organic or do you not want to buy organic? Mm -hmm. Because I, the more that I actually open up to people about this, the more that I find out that people are struggling more and more with disordered eating patterns. Like I have a friend of a friend and he is in like, you know, like a wonderful marriage and has a kid and has a great job and all of that. And I'm trying to set up the scene because he seems like the type of person that wouldn't struggle with disordered eating. And yet everyone jokes around with him because he binge eats in front of everybody because he, you know, grew up with a scarcity mindset. I think that he was like the youngest of like five children. And it's like one of those things where he's like asked people to actually like shame him in public, like as a joke. So then that way he'll stop eating. And I heard that and I was like, okay, okay. That's, um, that's that's really intense. Yeah. That's like actually really intense. And that's actually like, I know that we're masking like a lot of humor there, but there's a lot of pain there as well. And I just know so many people that the more that you open up about stuff like this, the more that people come out and they're like, oh yeah, I order a pizza every night or like I overeat on X, Y, and Z or, and we'll touch on the overeating term in a second, but there will be, there's just so many people that almost like come out of the woodworks to discuss the fact that like, oh yeah, I do use food to cope in certain ways, or I use food to eat until I'm so full to the point where it hurts almost as like a way of self-harming. And it's interesting because I wonder if like with Sean, when you met him, if you, if, and then, you know, when I met like my partner now, my previous partners, like anybody, we were just open and honest with each other from the beginning. I wonder if at some point, if we were just like open and honest with each other, we'd find out that like everyone's struggling a little bit because we're all screwed up because none of our parents realize that like we could intuitively eat from a younger, from a young age that we've all had this, like, maybe I'm sure that there are some people who are listening who are like absolutely fine and who don't struggle with that or don't have partners or friends or close ones who struggle with it. But I think, I feel like most people on some level struggle with intuitive eating because we've just we have just destroyed our intuition through dieting, through diet culture, through, you know, quote unquote, healthy eating, all of that stuff. So there isn't a full way to just be good with the food that you have without somehow using it as a coping mechanism or as a way to harm yourself. I wanted to touch on the term overeating because you actually helped help me with this perspective and with understanding that the term can be both beneficial but also harmful, do you want to talk about what that term means to you, or what? Well, not what it means to you, but but how we um, need to be mindful about how we use it. Yeah, I think for me, you know, I used to use the term overeating, especially on my platform back when I would talk about recovery a lot. As I was going through it and navigating it, I would say something like, you know overeating needs to happen in recovery, no matter whether you struggled with anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, you know, whatever it is that you struggled with, you need to overeat in order to, you know, give your body the signal that yes, there is enough food and there will be enough food and we won't take the food away anymore. We won't go on another diet, that kind of thing. And it wasn't actually me that came up with the fact that it might be harmful to people. It was just other people in the community that educated me on it that, you know, overeating can be a very triggering word um, because it is so subjective and it is so intertwined with diet culture. So, you know, some people can feel like they overate, whereas to another person, this is just a normal meal. And, you know, setting those terms can just make people it can just induce extra guilt and shame when it comes to recovery and when it comes to eating in general so I think the term that I started using afterwards was something like eating past fullness or you know eating until I was uncomfortably full um, versus using the term overeating on the other hand though and I know 
we had that conversation before is like for some people it can be a good indicator of like it can just basically mean the exact same thing as like eating past fullness so it can just be a non-triggering word that people just Mm -hmm. use to sort of gauge uh their hunger and fullness for me personally i i actually stopped using that term um and and i feel better about not using it even for myself like i don't say to myself or to sean or to anybody i'm eating with like oh i just i really overate it's just when i eat past fullness for whatever reason maybe the food just tasted really good you know or maybe i'm eating emotionally because i'm really sad because that does happen sometimes and sometimes i you know that is my coping mechanism of choice and that's perfectly okay um i just sort of tell myself like hmm, you know i i ate past fullness you know it's it's just sort of a signal that my body is sending to me like you know, we're really full right now and it's going to go away. And it, it doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean that I have to be ashamed of myself. Um, it doesn't mean anything. It just means that my body is going to digest the food now and maybe it feels a bit uncomfortable, but it will pass. And that really helped me in, you know, not falling back into old patterns where I would tell myself that I needed to restrict the next meal or I needed to restrict the next day to quote unquote make up for it. It was just, it was just one event and I can just move on from there and just continue eating normally like I would have. Mm, so good. Thank you so much for describing that perfectly. I really appreciate it. I'm curious what your coping mechanisms are now when you are in the moment and you realize that you are eating past fullness. I know that, you know, you have to blanket yourself with heavy self-compassion and you have to honor that there are specific needs and that this is serving a need. I'm reading a book right now all about emotional eating. And one of the biggest things that she talks about is that we have to, in moments where we might be eating past fullness and we start to realize, because oftentimes it's also automatic, when we realize that we're eating past fullness, that we have to ask our bodies, like, what emotion am I feeling right now? Or what emotion do I not want to feel right now? What am I avoiding? What am I trying to get to? Because I think for a lot of people, when they are potentially eating past fullness, or when they're emotionally eating, that they're coping, like they're trying to, you know, not necessarily feel grief or sadness or anger or hurt, or even boredom. And in order to not do that, we, we eat. And so one of the things that she talks about is like getting into your body in those moments. And I was like, oh my gosh, I felt so activated when I read that. I was like, oh my God, I don't want to go in the bo- in my body when I'm, mm-hmm. when I'm binge eating, like the food's going in my body for me in a way, you know, where I don't have to go and be embodied in myself. And so using food is a way for me to disconnect because maybe being in the moment is too overwhelming. So I'm curious for you, what are the ways that you have found to cope the best when you're in the middle of that? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I'm really only answering this from my personal experience. This may not be helpful for everybody, but for me, none of these tips worked when it came to you know instead of emotionally eating try this you know instead of Mm. eating try calling a friend or instead of eating take a bubble bath or instead Mm -hmm. of eating paint your nails like that just further threw me into this restrictive mindset where like I would just binge later on um and I couldn't not allow myself to eat especially in the beginning where like my body just didn't trust me yet that I wouldn't go on another diet. And just the mere thought of like, I'm going to eat less for dinner would just trigger a binge eating episode. So what really, I don't want to say it worked for me, but it just like, Mm -hmm. it just took a lot of pressure off was to actually allow myself to eat and to commit to, you know, having other coping mechanisms on hand after and to really rid myself of the guilt and shame. Because whenever I felt guilt and shame for having binged or for having emotionally eaten, it would just trigger another episode um, or it would trigger me, you know, trying to work out extra hard and just a lot of harmful behaviors that would just keep me stuck in the cycle. So getting rid of that guilt and shame and just truly allowing myself to eat and like taste the food and like not just, you know, 
keep eating random things to like punish myself because now I'm already emotionally eating but being like what sounds really good right now like do I want cake do I want like pasta do I want like a really really hearty meal and I would actually like take the time to to cook that for myself and like enjoy it and once I was done eating I would then sort of have a little list that I worked through in therapy with just coping mechanisms that would really serve me uh, for me, a big one is writing. Um, that's just something personal. I love writing. So I sort of just, you know, would go to my laptop and just kind of write out how I'd feel. I would do like my CBT exercises and stuff that I'd learn in therapy. Um, sometimes it's just doing nothing, like the act of doing nothing and watching something on Netflix and mindlessly scrolling Instagram or something like that. And other times, maybe it is calling a friend, but just just really taking that pressure off of like, I am not allowed to emotionally eat and I should instead examine my emotions. Like that really, really helped for me. So I found that I am going to food less overall now. Not that that's good or bad, but I'm going to food less overall now when I am feeling really sad and more so gravitate towards writing um, or actually just like, cooking myself like a really elaborate meal and like enjoying the cooking part versus just trying to sort of numb out and just like going back to what do I need right now to take care of myself what do I need right now what would make me feel better does that make sense yeah absolutely so it's definitely for you more about like when you were in the beginning phases of recovery like letting yourself eat like just being like yeah you're gonna eat and yeah. there's no restriction whatsoever. And uh, Caroline Dooner and I, we've chatted about that before on here and how scary that is for people to just like have no restrictions whatsoever because you really think that you're going to never stop eating. Mm-hmm. But when you've created a famine response in your brain, it totally makes sense why you have to re train your brain to say like, nope, we have food in abundance. Nope, we have food in abundance. Everything is totally fine and totally okay. And then you can move on to different coping strategies. Like once you've like kind of figured that out and there's no perfect process for every person in recovery because everyone's different. Like everyone's recovery journey is going to be different. Everyone's coping strategies are going to be slightly tweaked, which is great because it means that you have to figure out what works for you and that there's not a blanket recovery guide, one fits all kind of thing. Totally not. And I think, I don't know if you experienced this too. I definitely went through it and I know a lot of people have. You you sometimes get to a phase of recovery where you're kind of recovered, but not really. So for me, that was, I love Caroline Dooner, by the way. I learned so much from her. I discovered her blog like years ago before she blew up online so I'm always like super proud of that I was like what if her Uh, first fans (laughs) um mm -hmm. but in the beginning of recovery I would try and do it quote-unquote by the book and there is a lot of people unfortunately that just talk about like still kind of having to restrict um specifically if you're recovering from binge eating there's still a lot of focus on like weight management and weight loss and stuff like that and I totally bought into that and for me personally that just kept the cycle going and it just kept me stuck where I would think you know now I I ate all of this food while on vacation I need to make up for it afterwards and it's just you still just think about food all the time and I think you know when I when I dove into Caroline's work and I was like well I've tried everything else like and it's not working. So I'm just going to try this. I'm just going to let myself eat. And I'm going to work through not feeling guilty and not feeling ashamed for it. Um, And I'm just going to see what happens. That is when my body finally started calming down. And I think it was like really on a cellular level where my body was like, okay, we're getting enough food and she's not taking it away anymore. And we can relax now. And that's when I got my period back. That's when, you know, I was more than weight restored um Mm. and and that's when I sort of just started to feel normal again that's when I got my sex drive back and all of these things so it just it really takes time to figure this stuff out it's not a you know follow this six-week program and then you're recovered kind of thing it's just it's an ongoing thing so what was your wait sorry should have responded I was like so caught up in that um (laughs) yes 
thank you so much for sharing. And you're right. There's the burden of time that comes with our recovery journeys where it's like, you really have to let yourself go through the motion, like, and figure it out. And that will take months to years, not to freak anybody out. Who's just beginning and not, but you can't, it's like when you're grieving something, like you can't give yourself a set an end date for it. Like it's forever, especially because we live in a society that's constantly pushing back on us. Like we will always see women with ripped abs on the buses, on the subways, on billboards. And we will always in our head be triggered as that's the ideal body. That's the thing that I want to gravitate towards and dieting can get me there. And so we're constantly pushing back on that. So what I wanted to ask was, you start this refeeding process where you are allowing yourself no shame, no guilt. You're eating whatever you want. I'm going to say whatever you want, but whenever you want, but I'm sure that that's um, maybe true, maybe not true. But the question that I want to ask is, what was Sean like through this? Like, what was it like? Like, what was your dynamic like through this? Like, were you nervous to eat as much as you wanted in front of him? Did you, were you ever nervous that he was going to judge you? Because I know that there are people who will be listening who are in relationships who would love to try that, but they're so nervous of what their partners are going to think. Like so, so many of us are scared of our recovery journeys because they might contain us gaining weight. It might contain, our recovery journey might contain us, you know, eating like a couple of cheeseburgers and like, and then like some popcorn after and then some ice cream and whatnot. And all of that is associated with fatness. And we live in a fat phobic society And regardless if your partner is like so sweet, so kind, so compassionate, similar to racism, we all deal with this internal structure that was built in from society. And so we all deal with like some sort of internalized fat phobia. So I'm getting to it. So I'm curious, what was the dynamic like with you and Sean? How did you feel letting him in after that moment and then continuing to let him in and continuing to eat however you wanted around him? Mm. And so true about what you said about the internalized fat phobia. And uh, it was very, very much present for me um, for a long time, maybe even more so than it was for Sean. It was not like, you know, when I first shared with him that I struggled with binge eating, that that was just the turning point. And from there on, it was just, you know, it was just unicorns and rainbows. It was definitely tough. I do think that I was the one that made it a lot tougher because of my insecurities around my weight gain and how much I was eating. Mm -hmm. I wasn't used to allowing myself to eat in front of other people to eat, you know, until I was full or to eat even past fullness. I was always, I always trained myself to eat way less, you know, or to order the salad in a restaurant. So it was really new for me to order a burger in a restaurant with Sean and like eat the whole thing, you know? So I think for me, it was like me being passive aggressive or me assuming that he was judging me more so than him actually judging me. Um, So (laughs) it took a lot of times of him actually calling me out on like, why do you keep talking like this? Like, why do you, why are you becoming passive aggressive right now? Or why do you keep talking about your body? Or why do you keep making fun of yourself about how much you're eating? Like, please stop. You know, this isn't funny. So I think a lot of what I dealt with was like overcoming my own fat phobia and overcoming my own insecurities when it came to like, does he still want to have sex with me? Does he, does he still find me attractive? Um, so mm-hmm. I do think that I was really lucky in that because I have heard stories of a lot of people over the years that were their partners aren't supportive and they are commenting on their weight gain and they are saying that they're not as attracted to them anymore. So I can't speak to that when it comes to my own experience, but I think something that did help in my relationship was to really let him in fully and to say something. I think I remember saying something to him, like, I don't expect you to understand what I'm going through. I just need your support. Like, I just need you to listen. I will share what's going on in my head. You know, please ask questions and try and understand, but you don't have to. Like you can just be there and you can just support me through this. And another thing that I had to ask him to do was like to not make any comments on like calories or the way he's eating, to not make any comments like, you know, Ugh, I ate so much or, you know, I'm so full right now or I shouldn't have eaten this, even when it came to his own behaviors around food, because that could be really triggering for me. 
Um, so I guess my tip would be, or advice would be, um, to just be really open with your partner about like, what are, what kinds of things activate you? What, you know, what kinds of comments can you not deal with? What kinds of topics do you want to stay away from in recovery? And to ask them to just be there to support, even if they've never been through it, they don't have to understand, but like, this is where you're at right now. Um, and to also share that, like, I'm really judging myself right now because I'm not used to eating so much in front of you and just really share what you're going through. Because I think what I did was not share for the longest time and just assume that he was silently judging and that just created such a divide. So it was definitely a process. And he knows so much about eating disorders now just because he was actually like really open to listening. And he just, he never went through one, but he just was there. So I think that was, that was like a big thing that I actually had to ask for because a lot of partners don't know how to show up and how to be supportive. So we sometimes just have to teach them and educate them and, and ask for what we need. Yes. The communication has to be like superb. <laughs> yeah. And it's tough. Communication is like, I mean, it's still a struggle for us, like 10 years into our relationship. It's not easy. Um, mm -hmm. But, but just, just being vulnerable, I guess, is where it's at. Oh, it never gets easier. No. And we've said this before. We've said this, you and I have said this, but also we say this all the time on the podcast that like, oh, it doesn't matter if you're like going to Brene Brown the shit out of your life. And you're mm -hmm. like, I'm just going to be vulnerable in every single moment. It never gets easier. No. Like it just doesn't like your resilience definitely builds up, but that doesn't mean that the moment of doing it ever becomes easier. It just means that you recover quicker afterwards from whatever happens, whether the person accepts you or rejects you, whether they comfort you or they don't comfort you, you just get stronger. So it, but it's that moment of, of actually leaning into vulnerability. No, never gets easier. Oh my God. <laughs> no. And the vulnerability hangovers, like just feeling so exposed, like that never gets old. It just it will always happen. It's totally. just part of it. Yeah. I think that having a partner who is open-minded is really key. Like if someone, mm -hmm. if, because I know that there are going to be people who are listening who have partners who are extremely fat phobic. I'm with a partner who is not, which I'm really, really, really lucky for because I have been with partners who are, and I didn't know that that term, you know, even existed because I was really fat phobic as well and, and all that stuff. And it starts off with like letting them in small or not letting them in, in small ways, but letting them like educating them in small ways, you know, like sending like a really good, infographic on Instagram and just like seeing what their reaction is like and then asking them what they think of the fact that we, you know, will always think that abs equal to health, even though that's not necessarily true or whatever it is. So I think like educating them in small ways and then like also storytelling your own story to them, like explaining what your relationship has always been like with dieting, with food how you feel right when you eat in front of them, what, how we're all so scared of being judged by one another for how much we consume because we consume too much. Does that mean that like we are, you know, are we going to be compared to fatness in some way? And because fatness is so synonymous with being unlovable, not being accepted, not being beautiful, not being whatever, are we going to be put in that category? And so I think that when we start opening up to our partners about this uh, and explaining to them, like, I have severe insecurities around this. I'm trying to unpack it myself, but we're in a relationship and we need to unpack it together because also I don't think that recovery lives in a vacuum. You know, like if you're recovering, you do have to let your partner in on that. You do have to tell them that, hey, you can't talk about calories mm -hmm. around me. I would even go so far as to say, like, you can't diet around me. Yeah. You know, you can't do that. And if you have certain body goals, like that's something that we'll unpack in the future, but you can't talk about them with me. Mm -hmm. If you're going to the gym to work on your biceps or work on like getting abs or something, like you can't discuss that. Sorry, that was really long. But again, like I could just talk with, I could talk about this with you forever because it's just it's so true and I've I've been trying to do a lot of that work in my own relationship just like letting him in more discussing those things 
seeing how we are so similar with food in certain ways and how we're so different in certain ways. Like I asked him the other day, I said, do you, I said, do you ever, you know, like eat past fullness? And I mean, I have like a really dark sense of humor. So of course I was asking him because like I always eat past fullness and he was just like, you know, maybe sometimes, but like I'll eat to like a point of like being really comfortable and like being tired. And then that's good to me. But he's like, no, I never eat to the point where I'm like, whoa, I'm like really full. I feel sick. And I'm like, oh, what's that like? That's nice. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> that must be so nice to not eat to the point of pain. Great, great. Cool, cool. Um, I've actually asked Sean this before. Um, he has definitely eaten like himself to feeling sick. Um, but I think that's because he has dieted in the past. Like, I don't know if your partner has maybe like not dieted ever or not seriously been into dieting like I do think that I don't know just everybody I've talked to that has experience with eating like until feeling sick um, or binge eating has a history of dieting so that's really interesting um, because that's like a famine response but Sean was just he never attached any emotion to it and I think that's why he never you know developed a severe eating disorder so when it when it did happen, he would just be like, okay, yeah, I, I feel pretty shitty right now. I don't feel great. You know, I feel really mm -hmm. tired and, and I feel really sick, but that's just, it just happened. And now I'm going to just move on with my day and wait till I feel better. So he wouldn't take any measures, like any drastic measures afterwards. He wouldn't like talk shitty to himself. He wouldn't feel ashamed. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think it was the same with dieting for him in particular, where like he wouldn't like he didn't feel a certain way about it. He would just he was just able to do it and not feel like he was depriving himself or, you know, there is people that like don't develop eating disorders from like restricting their food. But there's not that many, in my opinion, yeah. just from having talked to so many people over the years. Yeah, absolutely. Like Dr. Joshua Walrich has 100% said that where, you know, not everyone who diets will end up with an eating disorder, yeah. but almost all people who have had eating disorders have dieted. Mm -hmm. So it's like one of those things where it's like, okay, so we know not everyone who diets has an eating disorder, but everyone who's had an eating disorder has dieted at some okay. point in their lives. Not saying that dieting causes eating disorders, but it definitely it leads can. to them, I think, just depending on like your personality you type. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I actually still follow some really intense bikini competitors because they're friends of mine. And I know, I know, I know, I know that that's like totally, it seems completely incongruent with my values. And it is. Like I'm not going to deny it. It 100% is. That doesn't mean that I don't think that they're not potentially going to grow out of that, you know. I don't think that they listen to this podcast at, at all, so I'm like safe to say that. And even if they do listen like, "Hey, what's up? We'll have a conversation about it." But I think that they follow me and they like my stuff and they're into the education and they are 100% supporting the fact that like you can you anyways I'm I, I'm gonna digress with this way too much because it's just like that's another <laughs> podcast episode waiting what I'm trying to get at is that they firmly believe that if you are at a point where you lose your period or you are getting so obsessed over food to the point where you can't where it's like emotionally affecting you, then you need to step out of doing competing. And I'm like, at least that's a start. At least there's like a conversation around it and that they do support messages regarding that like all bodies are good bodies and that, you know, you should be following fat people on your timeline to be giving you an al alternative perspective on what's going on, like what life like basically is. And so at least there's that, but, and they, they seem firmly adamant that like that they don't have eating disorders, which is why it's okay for them to diet down and whatnot. But again, like that's a whole other podcast that that will take me an hour to unpack. I have so which, much to say to that too. So maybe we will do that in another episode. Yeah. But. Yeah. Cause I know that you, you didn't compete, but, or did you, did you compete? Um, I didn't end up competing, but I did live the lifestyle of a bikini competitor for two years. So I, I do uh, have a lot to say about that. 
so much unpacking, but we have hit our hour mark. Yeah. So I'm curious where people can find you online and we will definitely have to have you come back on. Sure. So you can find me on Instagram. My handle is at OnedBabe, all one word. And my website is onedbabe.ca. I have to say I haven't blogged in a while, <laughs> um, but there is a lot of blog posts on there as well as podcast episodes because um, I used to have a podcast as well, all about recovery, body image, and mental health. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your story. Thank you for giving me a platform. Love you. Love you. Chat soon. Okay, bye. All right, friends, you made it to the end of the episode. You know what to do now. Head over to our Instagram account, Conversations with Kenzie, and let us know what you loved about the episode. Or let us know what you didn't love. What questions did we miss? What questions could we have asked differently? Let us know there. As always, stay curious, keep asking questions, and keep making conversations in your everyday life. Until next time.